Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded at our 2015 Global PR Summit, which took place a couple of weeks ago in Miami Beach. This session features Burson Marstella, Global CEO Dom Baer, in conversation with two of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign aides, Chief Spokesperson Karen Finney and Digital Strategist Teddy Goff. The session is introduced by Paul Holmes. Way back from the terrace, I know that the pull of the ocean is uh, intoxicating, um, but we do have a really good afternoon program lined up for you. Those of you um, who are here um, again from last year will remember that one of the highlights of the 2014 summit um, was a presentation from uh, Frank Luntz, who was here representing uh, both MDC partners and the Republican Party today uh, in the interests of uh, being fair and balanced. We have a panel that is much more heavily weighted towards Democrats, uh, including its moderator, Don Baer, who is, as most of you probably know, the worldwide chair and CEO of Burson Marstella. Um, Don's background is particularly apropos to this panel. He was a senior advisor to President, the first President Clinton, um, an assistant to the President and White House Director of Strategic Planning and Communications and Chief Speechwriter uh, and Director of Speechwriting and Research. He played key roles in the Clinton presidency, including the 1996 re-election campaign, uh, helping to drive indica- in, um, integrated communication strategy across domestic and foreign policy, and developing major presidential speeches and policy, policy initiatives. He's also worked on each of the Democratic presidential campaigns in 1986, and he has brought some of his friends from the Clinton campaign with him today. Don Baer, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, come on up. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, you stole my line about fair and balanced. I, did, I wanted to make this point. This panel or, originally oops, was, um, was going to be uh, bipartisan. Uh, and the idea was to get some of the communication specialists from uh, various campaigns up here. Uh, and when we scheduled it, we didn't realize that, as you all now know, tomorrow in Boulder, Colorado, is the next uh, Republican debate. And so any self-respecting, and even some who don't have much self-respect, uh, a communications person with a Republican candidate is in Boulder, Colorado right now prepping his or her candidate. We are very fortunate, however, to have with us two of the most important people in Hillary Clinton's campaign. Let me also say that uh, in politics, as in life, and in everything you all do, stuff happens. And so we originally were going to have Jennifer Palmieri with us. Jen is the uh, communications director for the campaign. Um, I don't want you tweeting that any important stuff is happening, right? But she needed to stay back in uh, Brooklyn uh, for some meetings uh, last night and today. Uh, but we're, uh, as I say, very fortunate to have with us two of the most important people from a communication standpoint in the campaign. First, Karen Finney. So Karen Finney is the senior advisor for communications uh, <coughs> of the Clinton campaign. Um, 
I go back with both of these people, and I'm going to share a little bit about it because uh, Karen, you were, I don't know, 11 years old when yes, I first met you? that's right, exactly right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, Karen uh, worked for Hillary Clinton uh, in the 1992 campaign. She worked for Hillary Clinton in the Clinton White House. Um, uh, she went on from the uh, Clinton White House when all that was said and done to Scholastic, where you worked in a really important corporate communications role. And I remember we worked together some when I was at Discovery. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's worked in numerous other presidential campaigns. Some of you may know her as star of stage and screen. She had her own TV show on MSNBC for a year. Um, I tried to get her to come to work at Burson Marsteller, and she said, I'm going to take my own TV show at MSNBC, which happens a lot to me when I'm trying to hire people. <laughs> um, um, and she's now playing a really critical role uh, getting the message out and dealing with all the ups and downs of the communications world. Teddy Goff uh, uh, is the chief digital strategist for the Clinton campaign. And I want to say quickly also, he is a founder and principal in Precision Strategies. Um, he is one of the genuine uh, thought leaders and really people in the vanguard of digital social communications uh, in uh, the commercial corporate world as well as the political world. And he comes to it uh, with a tremendous depth of experience uh, in all of this because in 2007, he graduated from Yale College as an English major, uh, did what people get into politics do when they're, whatever, 21, 22 years old. He loaded up a U-Haul and drove to Chicago uh, to join the uh, campaign of then-Senator Barack Obama for president back when the stock wasn't trading that high. Um, he knew nothing about the online world other than that I guess you were on Facebook at that point. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, he was put onto what was then called the new media team of the Obama campaign, one of the sort of early people on it. And so that shows you what can happen to you. He is now uh, a world-renowned specialist in the field, and he's uh, running that part of the Clinton campaign and helping all of it to integrate with everything else that's going on. Um, so we're very happy to have both of you. What we're going to try to do today is talk about how things have changed in the, in the realm of political communications and perhaps somewhat uh, lessons to be learned from that world in the world that many of you are working in, which is more the corporate uh, consumer commercial context, uh, although I think sometimes it's a little dangerous for us to make those comparisons. So let me, let's just start with the big questions, right? You both have been at this a long time though, again, you're both about 25 <laughs> years old now. Uh, but you've been at this a long time. You've worked in campaigns even in the last decade, as you've seen a lot of changes. Why don't you each sort of talk with us about what you've seen that's changing? So for, you know, from the communications perspective, it, it's everything from you know, in 1992, it was things like you had to have two sources on the record to go with something in a story. So the way you engage with a reporter was That's very back different. when we had records. You remember records? <laughs> <laughs> we really did. There really were. Um, and actually, in the beginning, there was not really, there wasn't cable. Um, and you had to, I try to explain this to some of our millennials, the, that you actually had to read the newspaper and cut the articles out, Xerox copy them, put them in a packet, and that was called the clips. And they were sort of horrified, like, well, how did you share it with people? Like, you can't just forward it to someone. No, you actually had to go deliver it to them. Um, so everything from that to the way you know, cable has sort of changed the pace, I think, of the way we communicate and the nature of the way we communicate. I think also when you look at technology, 
um, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or the blogs, it has changed also who is able to communicate about the message. So the idea of controlling the message has become a little bit different than I think when you had, you know, three network television news shows in the evening and you had just the major papers to contend with. And now, you know, just the volume of organization, media organizations that you're dealing with, everything, you know, from, uh, a, you know, a, a blog about, you know, tax policy to the New York Times and everything in between. Um, and then even, you know, in 2004, I was reminding uh, Don that, you know, there was this New York Times cover story about blogs and, and Marcos and, like, the, the rise of the blogs. And now, you know, we sort of moved on even from that. Uh, and Twitter is playing uh, a pretty incredible role, I think, in this campaign in a way that it didn't even in 2007. I think Teddy can say a little bit more about that. But from my perspective as a communicator, uh, you know, part of, I think, the biggest piece is just it, this, the news cycle moves much faster. There are many more of them in a given day. Um, and there are multiple, you can have multiple people from a single news outlet working on multiple stories at the same time. So again, this idea of sort of putting out a message of the day or driving your message is more complicated because you also have to contend with these other stories that people are working on. And frankly, you know, I think cons consumers of news and information have a lot more power uh, in the way they interact with information and the way they impact the news in terms of, you know, Twitter, for example, like people absolutely pay attention to, um, you know, what's trending, what's not trending, and that can have an impact uh, in a way that you never would have, you know, had to think about before as a communicator. Uh, the last thing I'll say is also, I think, from the perspective, having been on the other side, um, I can tell you just from when I was at MSNBC, from the perspective of, um, as a TV anchor or a news person, the pressure. Um, you know, a lot of reporters now have to, they may be an on-air person, but you have to tweet, you have to post on Facebook, you have to post on the blog. So there's a lot more pressure on them as well to sort of broaden their reach onto different platforms um, and to break stories um, and sort of, uh, you know, build audience, and they actually pay attention to those things like how many Twitter followers you have, how many Facebook followers you have, in a way that, you know, I don't think Adam Nagurney from the New York Times <laughs> had to contend with Last back from in the past, right? 1992. Yep. Before we go to Teddy, because you've teed up a lot of things for him, I just wanted to introduce one other part of the conversation here. A few weeks ago, I noticed a Wall Street Journal column from a guy, uh, some of you may know, Andrew Ferguson, who's sort of a uh, center-right kind of columnist, and uh, his headline is, My Email Pal Hillary Clinton. And he says, I don't want to brag or anything, but Hillary Clinton and I are pretty tight. I'm not saying we're best friends. In fact, I'm not saying I've ever laid eyes on the woman. And of course, there's nothing improper about our relationship. We're both happily married for one thing, and let's be honest, neither of us is getting any younger. But then he goes on to sort of point out that uh, Hillary Clinton recently wrote him an email, and she writes him lots of emails, and she always starts him with the word friend, she wrote. See what I tell you? It would mean so much to me if I had your support before midnight. And then he says, now taken out of context, a line like that with the suggestion of stolen kisses at a moonlight rendezvous could get both of us in trouble. The media are just brutal to the poor woman. All she meant was a big cam campaign fundraising deadline was coming up, and she hoped I would contribute a dollar. So 
I bet you all have these same emails, right? Uh, Hillary Clinton's birthday was yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. We all know it because everyone <laughs> told us about it in emails. But anyway, Teddy, I, it, it, the whole role of the sort of digital realm has changed in, in, uh, over time. And why don't you talk with us about how sure. it's changing still? First of all, I'm very proud to have been a chief propagator of everyone in the country knowing that it was Hillary's birthday yesterday. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that, that was what I set out to do. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, needless to say, I agree with everything Karen said. I, I think the part that's really interesting to me, well, first of all, I mean, it, uh, and I, this is a group of smart people, some of whom um, I know really well, so I'm probably telling you things you already know, but um, the pace of change, it just can't be overstated. I mean, even the 08 campaign, which I think people look back on as having been this super savvy digital campaign, you know, we were operating at a time when we had a five-digit number of Twitter followers on election day, um, and there was no such thing as Twitter strategy. I mean, you know, that would have been a, people would have laughed if you'd put those two words together in a sentence. And so, you know, all these things, you know, I think were really beginning to reach maturation over the the course of, uh, you know, between then and 2012, and then obviously even more so now. I think the thing that's really interesting to me is the way in which I think it changes kind of the hardwiring of the brain of the of the user, of the reader, of the political, um, uh, of the voter. You know, I think it's very clear that we have no power to make them pay attention to anything. They pay attention exclusively to the things they want to, and that applies to brands, by the way, and that applies to advertising, which it's easier and easier to either tune out or literally click away from and not even experience. And so I think there's this new, you know, while Karen and her team are focused on figuring out what to say, my team and I are focused on figuring out how to, how to hopefully not say the wrong thing, that's still extremely important, but how to do it in a way that's actually interesting and is actually gonna travel and is actually gonna mean something to people because um, the levers that you have as a communicator to, you know, sort of get something in front of people, even if it doesn't, you know, happen to strike their fancy are, are you know, are just diminished to the point of, of, of almost nothingness. Um, and that's, you know, that's without even getting into, you know, then you have to figure out like Snapchat and then you have to figure out Instagram. You got to figure out all these new things. But I mean, I think at a basic level, there's this new, relatively new prerogative to make it interesting or else it's not going to fly. And, um, and, and what I think we're observing is that things that are interesting that we would prefer not to talk about do fly. And we have very limited control over, we have very limited ways to you know, sort of stop them from traveling. And so there's, you know, it's just everything, the premium is on that which is interesting, that which you kind of have this instinct to tell your friends, that which you kind of want to comment on on Twitter. And that's a whole different thing than driving a message of the day, as Karen was saying. And it's a whole different mentality, I think, that we've got to have on the campaign. How do we kind of, navigate that as best we can, shape it to whatever small degree we can, you know, in addition to, but to some degree rather than, you know, focusing on sort of what we're broadcasting out and how we're driving the, the message. So behind all of this, I think, is a word we use called content, right? I mean, the it, what you're putting out, whatever that it is. Back in my day, content was a president would make a speech, right? Or a candidate would make a speech. Right. And then you'd figure out how to get that content out there through People went on TV and talked about it, or maybe you would email people the speech so they could read it themselves. How do you think about content? Is it something you create? Is it something you try to avoid? You know, <laughs> what is it? I would just say it's, it's, we think about, I can say just as a communicator, I think about it very differently than in the 90s or the early 2000s. And in, in, in by, by that I mean, and part of this was from my time also in corporate world, but that content is no longer just a speech. It could be a video, it can be a tweet, it can be, so the way we think about 
the message and the content, you're thinking across as many platforms as you can and thinking about either, you know, sometimes it's this is a perfect message for Twitter, so we just want it because we want to maybe just get a quick, short message out, or it's more appropriate for a statement, or it's a speech, and we will tweet about the speech to, to sort of support that content. So, I mean, part of it is in terms of the strategy of how you get the content out has changed and how you think about content has changed. And again, it's not just uh, the written word uh, or, you know, it is audio, it is video, it is, um, you know, one of the things I think our team has done um, very well is just made beautiful videos to sort of highlight some of the issues that we're talking about. And they're not always necessarily with Hillary at the center, they're about people. And they're about people. Um, we just put one out um, the other day on equal pay, and it's a little girl who, and it's adorable, so of course we couldn't, you know, we couldn't resist, who in a town hall asked her about equal pay and actually, you know, had a very a serious question about equal pay. Now that... And actually asked her if she would make the same amount as president as a male president would make, which yeah. was kind of an adorable uh, question. Right. And that, you know, I mean, that's content. That communicated exactly everything we've been saying about why this is important, why this is important for women, for our next generation. Um, yes, we've given speeches, and yes, we've done talking points, and yes, we've been on television talking about it. But so that's what I mean when I say, like, how we think about content and how to communicate the message um, that that content is trying to relay is different in that we have to think about it much more broadly than I, I think we used to. Teddy, does all that stuff work? Is it, does it reach people? Do they respond to it? And how do you know? Um, uh, so, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, I think um, well, what I think what I think we're trying to do is learn from the Buzzfeeds and Voxes and Vices <laughs> of the world, because I mean, as we think about particularly on the internet, you know, who, how how on earth do you get anything out there in this increasingly uncontrollable environment? And you th you know, your mind sort of goes to well, who's doing a good job of that? And you think well, Buzzfeed and Vice and Vox and all these companies. So, you know, we're trying to sort of. Um, you know, essentially replicate that kind of editorial shop in-house. Um, obviously, it, it, um, you know, a, you know, a, a smaller campaign or a, or, a, or a little brand may not have the ability to do that. That's part of why they hire firms that have kind of editorial houses in-house. But we're trying to learn all the sort of audience development uh, tricks and the way you do sort of, you know, the headline, the Buzzfeed <coughs> headline thing, and make it interactive when possible, quizzes and lists and things like that. But I think, um, you, I mean, you asked, does it work? I think the truth is. Um, you know, again, you can't make people pay attention on the internet to something they don't care about. And so you can try to make it 10% more interesting by making it an infographic rather than a wall of text. You know, you can make sure that the headline is as kind of socially optimized as possible. But fundamentally, I think, you know, people are pretty um, discerning. They know what they like. They know what they don't. They know what they care about. They know what they don't. And um, without trying to be sort of defeatist about it, I mean, I think we influence uh, the dialogue. But I think, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have a tool in our toolkit to make people believe something they don't believe or care about something that is boring to them. Now, one way you do it is, go ahead. What was your... No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, one of the things I find so interesting, having done a few campaigns, and this is something I worked, Howard Dean was the chairman of the Democratic Party, and I worked for him. And his big thing was. So you scream. Yeah, post-scream, <laughs> okay. post-scream. Um, but, you know, his big thing was, in addition to 50-state strategy, was also he was very interested in technology, but how do we use technology to make it more efficient to do the one thing that we know is most effective, and that is to hear from someone you trust, whether that's a friend or a neighbor, 
I'm voting for Hillary Clinton and here's why. Or I'm, you know, oh, you should try this product and here's why. I mean, that, I think, at the, S, at the end of the day, I mean, yes, we're, there's content and we're communicating and we're reaching out. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of what we're focused on is also about trying to, you know, we want people to, to connect with each other and their own networks, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or email, because some people still do email as a way to connect. How do we, how do they, you know, how do we give them the tools to some degree, whether it's an article they read or a copy of the speech, um, to then communicate with their circles? So one way you do it, your campaign did it, which I think we all think was brilliant, is you arranged for a House of Representatives com investigation committee to hold an 11-hour hearing, <laughs> right, with your candidate on national television all that time. That took a lot so of So I won't ask yeah, how you okay. did that. Yeah, it's it's really idea. tremendous. But <laughs> right. it, it does. Talk to us a bit about managing the communications around that, yeah. both going into it and <laughs> while it was happening, and what happened right after. For, for both sure. what so, you do, Teddy, and how you're looking at it, Karen. You know, I think, um, first of all, I think the communication during and after largely took care of itself. I mean, I, you, know, I, w you know, we had thought about perhaps putting together like a little... You can't tell a room of professional communicators it takes care of itself. Well, but then again, yes. you don't usually get a grand slam like that. I mean, I, you know, we had thought about putting together a clip reel or something like that and just thought, you know what, let everybody saw and, and we don't need to overplay it, you know, everybody saw. I think going into it, now, I mean, we do need to make sure that you get reach to those who did not necessarily see. So of course we, you know, did simple, unedited, you know, um, uh, excerpts and things like that. People seem to get a kick out of like her facial expressions and so we had fun with the GIFs and screenshots oh. and that kind of thing. Um, but, um, you know, I thought, I think we thought better to leave well enough alone. I feel like all my answers so far have sort of been like, yeah, we can't control this, we can't control that, we have nothing <laughs> to do with say, that. Um, so then why know? are we looping you in on everything? <laughs> uh, what? You know, going into it, I guess, um, you know, and I think Karen made a, a excellent point about making sure that people are hearing from the people they trust. You know, and um, you mentioned email earlier uh, in the context of those annoying fundraising emails. You know, I think um, one, one thing that we do have the ability to control is the direct communication that we have with the people who do listen to us. And, you know, in politics, you know, 48% um, uh, of the country can't stand you, and, uh, you know, five or six or 7% is undecided, and the other, you know, whatever is left there um, may like you a little bit, may like you a lot. And so, you know, we have a few million people we can reach on email, a few million people we can reach on social, and making sure that they are armed with the facts and also with a little bit of inspiration and motivation so that they actually want to, you know, keep opening those emails every now and again, talk to their friends about it, um, is, is key. And, um, you know, and, and obviously putting our side of the story, I mean, a, a thing that we put a lot of um, cycles into leading up to last Thursday was um, reinforcing uh, Hillary's tenure as Secretary of State, which has kind of gotten lost in all this. And I think that the Republican and obviously, I'm sure nobody here wants us to get political, but I think just from a strategy perspective, I think part of what they've been trying to do is undermine her record as Secretary of State, which they know was a, is a real strength of hers. And so we were trying to sort of get that back into the conversation and prop that back up. And so if you look at what we were saying on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of last week, uh, and actually going back to the previous Friday when uh, Madeleine Albright gave a speech, um, a lot of it was just about sort of reinforcing her record there and, and making sure that it isn't allowed to get kind of thrown out with the bathwater of, mm -hmm. of the Benghazi hearing. But then I think, again, I mean, nothing, nothing did more work for us than Hillary Clinton just doing a badass job for 11 hours where everybody could watch it and watch her be herself rather than the caricature of and it was that the talking point to her? Do a badass yes. job? just be a badass. Right. Yeah. Badass yeah. is a term that gets thrown around a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Um, How did, what, you were doing... So I was briefing Trey Gowdy, 
And I said, <laughs> you know, if you could not wipe the sweat off your forehead right, right. for 11 hours, <laughs> and if you could ramble a little bit in your questions, yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I only say that to say um, they helped <laughs> in, in that, um, it, you know, she was so well prepared, and she did, and she knew. I mean, she knew what she was talking about. And so, so there are a couple of things to what Teddy was saying. Yes. So, so there was, you know, there's the before, the during, and the after. And so, the before, as Teddy was saying, there was a lot of thought about. Okay, we know one of the narratives they're trying to push is incompetence, right? That this, and not just on her. They were also trying to use her to get to President Obama. Um, so one of the things to reinforce then is the competence of her tenure as Secretary of State. Madeleine Albright, we had other um, national security folks who wanted to, you know, who were willing to go out and talk about, you know, the situation in Benghazi or sort of some of the particulars around what was going on. Um, so that was part of it, was sort of thinking about what are the narratives we know they're trying to drive and how do we combat that or at least get into those stories leading into the testimony. Um, and then, you know, during the testimony, it was so interesting. I mean, as it unfolded, it, I think part, I mean, she was the message in so many ways because she was so confident, because, um, it, I mean, it became an endurance test to some degree. Um, and she never lost her cool. And she, you know, whereas, um, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, the mood of the members kind of seemed to yeah. Let me ask you a, a quick question because it's just an interesting choice. Her first interview after that was on the Rachel Maddow show. Yes. How did you decide to do that? Because um, she asked nicely. How? <laughs> how? No, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one of the other things about um, the Benghazi testimony uh, it, w w that, and that whole thing, I mean, you know, one of the other messages that we've been talking about, in addition to Yes, there are serious questions, and she will answer those questions. You know, I mean, part of the messaging too is about, or the communications is about. There's sort of two pieces to this, right? There is the piece that is very serious, very real. Four Americans lost their lives. We need to know how we do better to make sure that doesn't happen again. Then there is the political theater of what was going on, and certainly going into this, I think the dynamic shifted. A lot of people have written about this, obviously when you had Congressman McCarthy's comments um, and a second congressman's comments. So they actually shifted their own narrative a little bit going into it, which I think part of what they were trying to do was recapture that mm -hmm. during the, the testimony. So, um, but in terms of talking about the political theater or sort of illustrating that, um, I think, again, just the length of time uh, sort of fed into that. And part, so R Rachel Maddow was someone that we thought would be tough but fair, and who would both be interested in both the political piece and the seriousness of, of the subject matter, um, particularly given that she's someone who, you know, she's written a book about Afghanistan. She knows a lot about the region in general. Um, and if you watch the interview, I mean, there's, the first part of it was, all, was about sort of our, our foreign policy strategy um, and what's going on in the region um, today. So that was part of it, was someone who we thought could you know, ha handle both sort of objectives that we were looking for. And yes, she asked really nice. <laughs> okay. We want to make sure there's time for questions. So I want to make open it to the floor now for questions. If anyone wants to put right here. Is there a mic? Raise the hand. Thanks. Hi, uh, Chris Alieri with Edelman. Um, first off, 
congratulations. You guys are doing an amazing job as a team overall, as a Thank campaign. You. But also Thank you for scheduling this now yeah. instead of three weeks ago. I would even argue. We, we, we were thinking ago. we might ask them not to come down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, no, I would even argue a few weeks ago so um, or months. Uh, how, like with regards to Benghazi hearing and, and other things that the secretary has done so well, um, how do we work with chief executives or, you know, in, the, in your case, working with someone like her who is very smart, you know, a student of the world, shows up prepared, probably has a very clear idea of how things should go, what outlets she should spend her time with, what the strategy should be. Um, so with something like Benghazi, like, like if we, we have chief executives, we have clients, we work with people that may be hard to give that counsel to. And, um, you know, not only like That's kind of positioning hard. it, but just, and you know, how you, never like that. how you do that. And then also, I just want to talk about your social strategy, too, that you guys use a lot of people. So you use a lot of people in Iowa, a lot of people in New Hampshire, especially. And um, I think that that's also something we could learn from brands, too. We're too often pushing product, but maybe pushing more through our social feeds, the actual people experiencing our brands and our clients. Well, why don't I take that? And then you can take how you train CEOs. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that, uh, well, thank you for your comments. That is something we try to do. I mean, I think, first of all, because salesiness, I think there's nothing that people on the internet are more allergic to than salesiness. And so if it's all product, 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 or candidate, 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 you're just missing the mark. Um, also, I think, to, again, to Karen's earlier point, um, we know that, and this is, I guess, this is sort of semi-related or like maybe a couple steps down the field from the salesiness thing, but um, people are inclined to trust people who look like them, people who talk like them, so that which does not seem like rhetoric. I'd rather be ever so slightly off message if it's funny or if it's emotional or something like that. And, you know, you get that from... And, and, and by the way, if that you know, thing that's funny or emotional is conveyed by a real person, it's that much more um, you know, sort of credible, which is obviously the, um, the currency we, we, try to, we try to deal in. So um, that is something we try to do. As for, as for, <laughs> yeah. as for having, candidate management. Having worked with a CEO who was a little, <laughs> having worked with several that were a little bit um, reluctant to change, shall we say. And, I don't, and by that, I do not mean my current boss. Um, you know, I think a, a piece of it is, I mean, you know, I always felt like you have to make your case as to why this is the best option. Um, you know, going back to the Rachel Maddow example, uh, part of, you know, part of the thinking was the kind of journalist that she is, we also believed it would be a thoughtful conversation, not a gotcha conversation. She doesn't have the same pressure as you know, some of the others do, where they just have to make news. Like, her idea of making news is sort of more an interesting conversation, not, I want to get you to say something you don't want to say, right? So part of it is, I, you know, I would say, if I were talking with a CEO about that, sort of, you know, what are, you know, what are we trying to accomplish here? And this is why I think this person and this strategy is the way to get there. But the other thing I want to raise is something that Jennifer talks about, Jennifer Palmieri, who couldn't be here, talks a lot about, which is, you know, we're often trying to think about, yes, we, you know, deal in this world where everything is fast and moving fast, but also trying to think about what are the things that are going to have a shelf life. And I think, you know, part of communications these days is, you know, on the one hand, like I've worked with a CEO who wanted to be a thought leader in certain areas. That is a different kind of strategy, um, which is, you know, it's got to have a shelf life. It's got to, you've got to grow that person's reputation in that area. Uh, which is a sort of more than, you know, looking for more sort of thoughtful, um, maybe longer form uh, arenas versus 
when you just want to, you know, you're trying to launch a product or shut something down. So I think that, I mean, from our perspective, I think that's something that translates is this idea because the news cycle does move so fast. And certainly, I think on the consumer side, people are, you know, they love this one day and they love that the next day. And we find that one story is hot in the morning and by the afternoon, it's something totally different. Um, so trying to then think about, and I think the Benghazi hearing actually, um, without even trying, will be something that endures because it was just such a, I think, powerful. It was so long. Yeah, it was so. <laughs> but it, it was so yeah. sort of. We've just never seen. We've never seen anything like that. And I think that gets harder and harder to do from a communications standpoint. I just want to say one other thing about kind of selling things in, just in terms of digital. One thing that we're, um, and because I, 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 a question that I've been asked a hundred times is sort of like, how do you convince organizations or individuals who just don't get the whole internet thing to start getting the whole internet thing? And it's sort of like. It's not really rocket science. What we try to do is sort of take it slowly and start with low risk propositions and then work your way over to higher risk propositions. So, for example, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, we asked Secretary the, Clinton to do a Facebook Q and A. We thought that was going to be a relatively safe space. We could choose the questions. Facebook, because it's attached to your identity, unlike a Reddit or a Twitter necessarily, uh, people are a little bit less inclined to be, you know, uh, crazy. And so, you know, we started there, and she had a great experience. We would never have started with a Reddit AMA, which would have been a recipe for total disaster. And so, there may be a particular case where you do it backwards. But my point is, you know, you know, bank some, you know, sort of low risk wins, you know, prove by, uh, you know, by actual example, and and take it forward from there. Walter. Uh, the thing I was disappointed about with ben Benghazi is it ruined the story run of Saturday Night Live. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about that appearance. Um, and you talk about a low risk to a high risk strategy yeah. that had the potential of going Sarah Palin on you. Um, and what was the negotiation with Saturday Night Live? What are the I mean, it was brilliant. And by the way, we were live streaming it in Hong Kong the following day. <laughs> Um, and well, my 11-year-old uh, was bringing it to school. Wow. Cool. Um, so you've got the Hong Kong vote. I know. Yes. Um, you know, here's what I would say about that. She's really funny. So yeah. yes, it could have been high. I mean, that's you know, part of it is also knowing the person that you're working with. Um, so yes, it could have been. <laughs> Don knows what I'm talking about. I mean, it could have been, but I think there was also a sense of. You know, if we can find the, if we could find the right concept for the skit, it could, you know, because she's generally game to, you know, go along with the joke. So um, it was more about that and sort of, um, you know, so how do you formulate the right concept that's going to both, you know, show, and it's similar to when she did um, Jimmy Fallon and, you know, she had the, the he was Donald and called and she was, you know, had a glass of wine. It's like, how do you find what is, you know, a little bit true that we're making fun of, um, but where there's going to be a comfort level um, to let them kind of go out of their sort of comfort zone, I guess, would be the place. And, you know, look, part of our strategy throughout October was to, and you saw a lot more of her in interviews, and there, it was a combination of both you know, we did David Muir, we did um, a town hall with the Today Show, and we did Saturday Night Live, and we did, you know, Fallon. So the idea being we wanted to kind of 
mix it up a little bit. And Wasn't get, the plan to have one big robust laugh every 36 hours? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But also That's part of the to, whole plan spontaneity yes, approach of ours. Yeah, plan, exactly. Yes. That was the, yeah. yes, we had a whole meeting about how we yeah. were going to do that. But <laughs> the idea being, you know, to show sort of different sides of this person, um, because one of the challenges, and we've talked about this at the very beginning of the campaign, I think for us is that we are dealing with one of the most um, well-known unknown people in this country. People, there's so much people think they know about, and I think that's really has been our communications challenge. People, there's so much they think they know about her, and they have, there's so much they do not know about her. Is there any chance of seeing a Clinton-Trump lip sync battle? <laughs> um, I, I do actually have a, a slightly more serious question. So the last couple of election, um, elections, I'm actually going back quite a way, one of the things that has been apparent to me is this emergence of a, an almost unbreakable narrative in the, me, in the mainstream media about a candidate. So you saw this with you know, the whole Al Gore invented the internet, made up a ton of crazy stories, was a fabulous. The New York Times seems to have settled on a Clinton narrative, which is that she is calculating, self-interested, cynical. Every decision she makes is carefully weighed for personal advantage, and there's no authenticity there. Has that issue gotten worse of that sort of predetermined narrative? And has, is it easier or more difficult to break that in the social media age? Um, I think, first of all, it helps when the predetermined narrative is untrue. It's a lot easier to combat it when it's untrue, I, I would be remiss not to say. I think, um, uh, I think that's been a dynamic for a long time. I think it is still a dynamic. Um, I think one of the... Um, things that gets lost, kind of buried underneath that question is, most people in this country have made up their minds about politics. And that is a fact that does not change from cycle to cycle. And so these, these things that sort of feel like big currents that are moving, you know, when in the case of midterm elections, for example, has to do with who's voting or not, in the case of presidential elections, usually aren't true, you know, usually affect two or three percent of the country who's actually moving. I think, um, uh, I think it is very difficult, obviously, to change people's minds. Um, I also think, though, you have a lot more inroads in which to do it. And I guess the way I think about it is sort of like a, you know, it's, it's reach and frequency. I mean, um, there's nothing we can do today or tomorrow to change the mind of someone who is absolutely convinced that Hillary Clinton is cold and calculating. Over the course of 13 months, uh, if, if we're fortunate enough to win the nomination, um, they are going to see primarily through her being herself in these forums that Karen's mentioning, but also through us every single day grinding it out on social. You know, we do a Facebook post, it gets a million or two impressions. That's a million or two impressions more than we had if we didn't do a Facebook post. And we do that every single day, day in and day out. Again, it's very difficult to change people's minds, but, you know, you, you move the needle over time. Um, you, uh, you know, you work your angles, you work your communities, you make sure that your super fans have what they need, you make sure your reporters have what they need, uh, you try to reach the undecided voter largely through paid because the undecided voter is not coming to your website or going to your events. Um, and yeah, I think you can, uh, I think you can shift perception over it, time, especially if you're going to the place that's true. It also underscores the importance of the circuit breaker, like the Benghazi hearing. I was going to say, right? I mean, who saw a cold, calculating <laughs> person sitting there for 11 hours answering questions? I, I agree with that. I mean, look, I think there, the other piece of it, though, is I think from a communication standpoint, in addition to saying it's not true, we have to show that it's not true. And obviously, part of that is about um, not just what we say, but, but the visuals and the context of uh, the things that we do. You know, we, it was very intentional, and it was actually Hillary's uh, desire to start the campaign small and to really spend about a month just talking to people, just sitting down, having conversations. We had a lot of pressure from the media to do 
big events, to do glitzier events, and that's not what she wanted to do. Um, so I think for the, you know, to some degree that shifted the, the some of the reporters a little bit, um, and some certainly have that narrative um, set in their in their minds. I think for some of the local coverage has been a little bit different because they certainly have seen someone who sat there for an hour and a half having a conversation about everything from college affordability to um, heroin addiction, which is interestingly enough something that um, we've been hearing a lot about, and she heard about it enough places that she said we need a policy on this. So part of, and that's part of what I mean by showing as well, that you know, this is a person who is listening to what people are telling her, and then that is actually reflected in our policy. I think that's another way that, to sort of illustrate who this person is and the authenticity. So you know, again, it's, it, it's, we're communicating in a lot of different mediums and a lot of different ways than the, you know, the speech that we give, but also you know, through the people who are, are the, tweeting out in addition to the various ways we're trying to reach people. Can I just say one more thing about this? I, you know, I think um, reporters are obsessed with style over substance, and I think it's a, it's a mistake as a campaign, and I would I would posit it's probably a mistake for most brands to assume that the voter or the consumer is as obsessed with style over substance, because. 95% of voters are gonna vote for the person who they think is gonna be better for their families and better for their pocketbooks. Right. And so we could be chasing, we could be obsessed with this, does the Times think that she's calculating? You know, did Frank Bruni write another mean thing about us? Right. Or we could be trying to, you know, sit down with a thousand people in New Hampshire and show that she really cares about their lives. And I would argue, again, I mean, if you've got a crisis, you gotta deal with it, but I would argue that over the course of a long campaign, you're much better served focusing on substance and doing the New Hampshire thousand person event thing. That is a great place to end. Uh, we're out of time now. Thanks. Yes. I feel like I stole a question from somebody over there. So we have time for one more question. Good. Okay. Uh, is that okay with you? Michael Bassick at the back of the room. Ah. Michael Bassick. Hey, hey Michael Bassick. How are you? What role does big data have in each of your respective areas of communication? Like what are you tracking and how are you using that to improve the way in which you communicate with voters? And I'm curious from both of your perspectives. Well, I'm not going to say. Um, we got, we've got tw 13 more months to go. <laughs> Why would I tell you that right now? Um, it helps them find the last four voters in Ohio. Yeah. Yes. I'll say something uh, uh, vague uh, from which no strategic insights could be gleaned. There you um, go. You know, it's obviously hugely important. I mean, I think on the internet specifically, you know, you have access to all the behavioral data you need. So, I mean, and by, when, when I say behavioral data, I mean you know specifically, like, who opened that email about the birthday and who didn't, and who's clicking on this and not that. And that helps you not only... Um, serve them with a better, that helps you, sorry, not only do better and, you know, sort of get, get a sense of what's going to work and what's not generally, but also serve each individual with a better experience. And I do think, by the way, because I think it's easy to get cynical about big data and think it's all about kind of incursions on people's privacy. Nine times out of ten, it's about giving people more of what they want and less of what they don't. And I think that's a perfectly valid thing for a marketer to want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think where it has shortcomings still um, and probably will till 2028 or you know who knows when is you know it's important you know what we don't want to do is be chasing retweets you know we don't want to be chasing open rates if we're not getting you know the fundamentals taken care of so I'd rather a tweet get you know a hundred retweets but change 50 minds than a thousand retweets and change no minds and I think that is a thing that remains very difficult to to measure and and, and probably will for a little little while longer great 
Thank you. Thanks very much. Karen Finney, Teddy Goff. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 